Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. Hello and welcome to the very first Flaps Podcast. I'm Elliot. And I'm Mark. We're a new podcast aimed at the casual pilot. And believe me, there's none more casual than us. Hopefully, whether you fly small planes, large planes, get flown around by someone else, or just look up to the sky with a notebook in your hand, you're going to enjoy the next 30 minutes. Now, ready for departure in this first edition... No, 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 no. hang on, hang on. What? I thought we agreed we weren't going to do any sort of rubbish flying puns. <sighs> OK, fair enough. Uh, coming up in this first edition... That's better. Thank you. The only man to have flown through an ash cloud and lived to tell the tale. We adopt a wannabe pilot... Gulf War hero, footballer's friend, and owner of the best moustache in aviation, Pablo Mason talks common sense. And we ask if a Cold War nuclear bomber is louder than an African vuvuzela. And I'm Lemotopic, and I'll be telling you about my rather cheeky prop strike. Welcome to the first Flaps podcast. Now, buckle up. No, no, no. So, first on Flaps. Celebrity pilot. He's the former Member of Parliament for Montgomeryshire, former leader of the Welsh Liberal Democrats, and former cheeky girl lover. Uh, but on the positive side, he's a PPL holder, which is what we're interested ah. in. It's a big Flaps welcome to Lembit Opic on the phone. Hello, Lembit. Hello, and thank you for that cheeky and completely disrespectful introduction. But I forgive you because you're fellow pilot. Ah, well, you see, you can get away with anything when you're a flyer. You see, this is true. It's, it's, it's like a brotherhood. It's a secret society. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, I mean, you were an MP for 13 years. How, how are you finding life now? And uh, presumably you're finding more time to go flying. You've actually interrupted my watching of daytime television, so we'll have to make it quick. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> Jeremy Kyle will beg you to watch. Yeah. I'll just have to put him on hold. I'm hoping to get invited onto it, actually. Well, I was going to say, though, that's, that's when you know things are really going badly, when you're on Jeremy Kyle's show and you're not Jeremy Kyle. Um, I've been flying a little bit, but uh, to compound the offence, not only have I lost my job, but I haven't seen my beloved Mooney for eight months, because I had a prop strike in December. Oh, no. Uh, what a nightmare. So, uh, guess how much it's cost I dread so to th- I dread to think, Lambert. Go on. Two centimetre gash in the prop, so far cost, not 5,000, not 8,000, <laughs> but 43,000. <000. laughs> oh, my God. And do, do you not get a discount for being unemployed, Lambert? Yeah, that's right. I can claim all this back on benefits. Well, actually, do you know, if you were an MP, you could have, you could have tried to claim it through on, on your expenses. You know what? It's just... Hopeless. Even now, I'm being hounded beyond the political grave by so by sorry. your um, by your impertinence. It's a weird thing that you um, you ever started flying because I mean, you, your first sort of uh, venture into the air was paragliding in '98, and that was a bit of a disaster. Tell us what happened. They always used to tell me in politics they wanted me to take a running jump off a hill, so I found a sport where I could do it. Uh, unfortunately for me, I had a pretty much almost 100 percent. Uh, failure at about uh, about 30 meters couldn't have been completely failed because i'd have died but i hit the ground very hard and broke my back in 12 places but i'm very lucky to be walking and lucky to be able to have enough health to pass the medical every couple of years i was going to say does this affect your medicals at all well it's more of an essay than a medical (laughs) when i put all this down but they say have you had any any injury accidents i'd say well yes a couple of chapters worth but I keep an eye on it. I'm very careful with my back now. And I'm just really grateful that uh, I didn't come off worse. Absolutely. Mm. So, you, I mean, you've, you've had um, your licence, you said, for, so for half your life. I mean, have you got uh, ratings? You've got the night rating, the instruments, all that kind of thing? Uh, at one time or another, I've had the following ratings. Uh, basic glider rating, SMLG, so that's self-launching motor glider rating, the uh, club pilot at uh, Paraglide at the level rating. Um, I've had an instrument meteorological condition, conditions rating, night rating, I've got a twin rating, and some 
well, a complex single rating, of course. And I started on an instrument uh, rating as well, but I haven't completed that. So pretty enthusiastic about flying, I think you could say. Will you uh, stand again for Parliament, Limit? I might do. It's a bit early to say. I've started getting involved in politics again a little bit around in, in London, and I'm thinking of standing for Mayor of London, actually. Uh, also, there are many other seats where I would be probably quite popular for some of the things that Montgomeryshire folk may have not been very keen on. Lots of urban areas are quite, quite attracted to my celebrity status. <laughs> and also, I do work quite hard. So there is a good chance that I'll stand again, not least because I think aviation needs a strong voice in well, Parliament. I was, I was just going to say that, because I mean, there, there are a lot of issues politically with flying and access to airspace and, and all the kind of European rules and the, the EASA stuff that, that's possibly going on. I mean, you know, do you think that you would be the man to champion the, the GA pilots? I think I was. I always pride myself on actually standing up and saying, in fact, if there is an acceptable use of fossil fuels, it's aviation. It redistributes wealth from the richest parts of the world to the poorer parts through trade and also heavily through tourism. It's a very fast way for a small number of people who make huge contributions to the economy to get around. Aviation is incredibly important, and especially to an island country like Britain. What would you say is scarier? Learning to fly a plane, like cast your mind back to your first solo, or your new career of stand-up comedian? The new career as a stand-up comedian, is much more frightening than the solo because when you land on your first solo, people applaud, but you don't expect them to laugh at you. In this case, I have to get them to do both. It's really <laughs> strange because for the last 13 years, I've wanted people to take me seriously and been laughing away. And now I want them to laugh at me and they nod as if I've made a, some sort of an obituary <laughs> speech for my own career. Do you do any uh, flying or aviation gags in any of your, uh, your sets, Lembit? When I speak to aviators, yes. I think true to say that you, I, and the listeners are fairly anoraki. I remember I was being shown around by Ian Gray, the former Airbus chief executive up in where they build the wings in North Wales. I was getting more and more excited. We'd probably been going around for about three hours, and I was beginning to ask ridiculous questions like, so what's this? Oh, this is the undercarriage actuator unit. And I eventually said to him, I'll never forget this, I said, so what's its peak uh, wattage uh, at uh, the uh, point of retracting the undercarriage. And he looked at me, this is the chief executive of Airbus, and he went, Lembert, you really need to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> what he should have said, actually, is, in fact, it's not electrical, it's hydraulic, and the peak PSI 3,000. Oh, right, Lembert, no, no, Lembert. You want to get out more, Lembert? Yeah, yeah, you're not, you've lost us now. You've lost, <laughs> the, you've lost the room. <laughs> well, if you want some gags to work into your routine, and we've got, got a few flying gags here for you. Go on, then. Um, there are 100 people in a room how do you know which one's the pilot go on he'll tell you <laughs> uh, what's the purpose of the propeller go on it keeps the pilot cool just stop it and watch him sweat oh very good and uh, what's the difference Lembit between a duck and a co-pilot you can't claim the co-pilot on expenses <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good but it's actually a duck can fly very good. Uh, you, you can have those. Them. You can have those. Next time I'm addressing the <laughs> British Business and General Aviation Association, I'll have them rolling in the aisles. I shall name check you as well for those. Um, I think I, tonight I'm going to be doing a set, and I was going to use two political jokes, actually. Uh, one is, did you hear about the anarchist who got killed in a condemned toilet? No. He, he was crushed by the cistern. <laughs> 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 the other one is you like that one, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. Uh, the other one is uh, why do anarchists never drink Earl Grey tea? I don't know. Because property is theft. <laughs>
Hey. Hey. Brilliant. Just out of interest, before we go, where do you fly from? Welshpool International Airport. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Um, it's a lovely little place. That's where the Mooney is based when it's working. And I often fly to Leicester because that's where I learned. But uh, one morning, it is a 1,500-foot circuit. If you go around at 1,000 feet, you won't land. You'll crash because there are big hills on both sides. Mm. Well, Lembert, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And to you, my friends. You, uh, you, you're, a, you're a gentleman and an anorak, which is a good combination. Mayday, mayday. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully one day, Mayor of London, you can then probably get some real special VFR. That would be fantastic. You can, you can arrange for GA to all just go trawling through the airspace. Oh, yeah, no yeah, problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm working on it. I'm not going to make any commitments. I can't keep. <laughs> GA landing at Heathrow for £15. We'll have some of that, please. Um, all you need is an engine failure for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lembert. It's been a pleasure. Uh, anytime. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. What am I doing on Mayday? Damn, where's my diary? A couple of weeks ago at Wellsbourne Airfield, it was the annual Vulcan Day where they light up the barbecue and fire up the Vulcan. I caught up with Derek Powell, who's the former chairman of the Vulcan 655 Maintenance and Preservation Society. I began by asking Derek to tell me a bit about the aircraft. It was served with the RAF for 20 years, a number of squadrons, 9, 12, uh, 35, 44, 50 squadrons. Uh, over a period of time, as I say, running running into 20 years. It was built in 64 and it went out of service in 1984. It was then bought by a private owner with the idea of flying it on the air show circuit. This wasn't allowed by the CAA. Uh, and so the aircraft stood here uh, for about 12, 13 years uh, until we picked it up as a group with the idea of restoring it to serviceable ground-running condition, not, not to fly how long did it take to do that? Oh, only 12 years. <laughs> Just 12 years? And how much money did you need to do that? We can do it with very little, really, by, by aviation standards. We need to raise something in the region of about twelve to £15,000 every year uh, to buy things which we can't either beg, borrow or steal, uh, like fuel. There's no alternative to buying fuel which one time when we first started this we were paying 11p a litre, now we're paying something like 80-85p a litre. How much fuel does it use for a taxi run? In the 45 minutes uh, that we powered up, probably round about 5,000 litres in, in, in round numbers. Could it fly? We believe it could. We got to cater for the fact that if there was an absolute extreme emergency the aircraft could could take off so to that extent all the flying controls the aircraft systems that it would need to fly we maintain in working condition but it's never envisaged that this will happen because it couldn't land back here it would have to go somewhere and an RAF airfield probably where it would land and then almost certainly it would be scrapped. Derek Powell, the former chairman of the 655 Maintenance and Preservation Society. I also caught up with Wing Commander Mike Pollitt. Now, Mike had experience on the Vulcan until he retired from the RAF in 1981, so I began by asking him who the three flights crew on 655 would be. The captain sits in the left-hand seat, and captain today is David Thomas. Uh, He's probably known as Mr Vulcan and has been for many years. He displayed her in the late 80s and the early 90s on what they had at the time was a Vulcan display flight. The aircraft went out of operational service in 1984, but the RAF, in its wisdom, maintained her in flying condition because she always delighted the crowds at air shows, uh, and they kept that going until 1992. And the uh, defence cuts at the time, it was 
thought that it wasn't particularly uh, wise to continue spending about a million pounds it was costing in those days to keep uh, 558 running in military uh, condition. Uh, we switched seats, so the captain normally sits in the left-hand seat, but I'll probably sit in the left-hand seat today and uh, operate those sides uh, of the cockpit. But David prefers the right-hand seats where he used to fly uh, during the display season. So that is unusual, but the captain can choose whichever side he wants to sit. And in the back is Barry Macefield, the air electronics officer. He looks after the radio communications, and in the operational days, his main responsibility would have been looking after the electrical generation. She produces enough electricity to run a small town, frankly, and that is because of the electronic countermeasures, the Vulcan's sole defence against, uh, as it was in those days, Soviet fighters. Um, you just try and jam their radar, or jam the ground-based radars which were controlling those fighters. The fighter is our biggest threat, not a missile. Yeah. Now, what's it like to, uh, to fly one of these things? It is like flying a fighter. Uh, she is unbelievably manoeuvrable for an aircraft of this size, uh, unbelievably powerful. For example, an Olympus 201 will put out an equivalent to 30,000 bhp. Now, that is more than a Formula 1 grid at the start with 22, 24 cars lined up. Now, that's one engine. She has four of those. Extraordinary, no fuel virtually in her today. This is a 301 series, so this is even more powerful. That's uh, 80,000 pounds of thrust coming out the back, and she weighs about 98,000 pounds, so it's a one to one power to weight ratio, 0 to 120 in four seconds or less. Incredible power, very maneuverable. So it's like sitting in a bomber but uh, operating a fighter. So today's high speed run, you're going to. Uh Sit on uh, on runway what three six here Correct, at yes. uh, Wellsbourne. Yep. What it's, speed are you going to get her up to? Well, we're going to try and uh, simulate basically the conditions that would apply if we were actually doing a takeoff. So we'll go to full power, releasing the brakes at eighty percent power, and then slamming through the last twenty percent as you release the brakes because we can't hold her on the brakes at a hundred percent. And uh, she'll then zoom up to about one hundred and twenty miles an hour after four seconds. We'll let her go for another two seconds close the throttles and hopefully and gingerly ease back on the control stick so you get the nose wheel to rise. Now that's for two reasons. One, people like to see this simulated takeoff, desperately trying to keep the main wheels on the ground because she's not licensed to fly and the CAA would take away uh, our licenses if we were to break those rules. So it's not our intention to get the main wheels off, just the nose wheel. And in that nose high situation, that assists the braking because she breaks by drag uh, coefficient, and that's aerodynamic braking. It's a very, very short runway here. That's what's always against us. And I have this big fear of that probe on the front spearing a Caron caravan down the uh, Stratford Road there. So, um, yeah, that makes life interesting, and uh, it's going to be interesting this afternoon. Uh, Delta wing aircraft. Am I mm. right to think it uses the same engines as, as Concorde used? Well, yeah. Essentially the, the yeah, Olympus engine? Yeah. The, the 201s were the early Vulcans, as I was saying. The 301s or the 302s on this, or the 300 series, are the later Vulcans. The 400 series Olympuses were designed for the TSR2 with reheat, and that's the, the essential difference. And the 500, the 593, is, is the Concorde engine. So in many respects, the Vulcan, not just the airframe, I mean, if you stretch the airframe, you'll see the Concorde shape. And if you widen it, you'll see the B2 shape. The Americans were always very, very interested in, in this particular Delta configuration. Um, and uh, if we'd have been a bit cleverer in the 1940s and we'd understood uh, radars and being stealthy, we could have done a little bit more about that. But um, we didn't know about that, so she's not particularly stealthy. She can smoke when you've got a bit of power on, and uh, people can 
hear her coming for miles away and then she puts the sun out as she passes overhead. So uh, deaf, blind and then thump them. Yeah. Mike Pollock, great to meet you. Have a, have a really good aborted takeoff today, all right? <laughs> yes, thank you very much indeed. I'm not sure I'm looking forward to an abortion, but this is answer, so this is going to give me a thrill anyway, Mark. Very good report, that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I like that. Uh, very loud, though. Yes, it was uh, quite deafening. Right. Um, the thing is, how loud, though? Let's find out if it's as loud as the other big loud thing of the summer. Eh? The World Cup Vuvuzelas. Oh, right, OK. So uh, we've, got the, uh, we've got the twin Olympus engines. Let's hear those again, please. I'm just checking on our, uh, our sound meter here. Yeah, it's... Uh it's 116 decibels. That's loud. Right. That's loud. Now fire up the Vuvuzelas. Fire up the left Vuvuzela. Fire up the right Vuvuzela. Right, hang on, I'm just going to measurement. Hang on. It's 150 decibels. doesn't matter it really doesn't it, it's put it this way a vulcan is less bad for your hearing than a vuvuzela in the world cup it's all you need to know they would have been a good weapon in the cold war the flaps podcast for all things that fly even birds mark do you remember your first trip in a light aircraft i do yes like it was yesterday yeah scary and exciting all at the same time uh, simultaneously and then of course you have your first solo which is utterly terrifying <laughs> absolutely yes and uh, then of course your nav exam when yes. you get lost, get lost. No, no, sorry. uncertain of position, position. Yes, yeah yeah yes. obviously um so what we thought we'd do on the flaps podcast because because everyone's been through this and i guess if you're listening to it because you're interested in in flying and learning to fly you're going to have to go through all this so uh what better than to have a guinea pig kind of thing. Absolutely. A pet PPL. And he's on the phone now. Hello, Carl. Hiya. We welcome you into the Brotherhood of Flyers. <laughs> so you've had a trial lesson, that's all? Yeah, I've done uh, I've done a trial lesson, did it at Coventry Airport a month or so ago. It was a Christmas present for my wife. All right, so it's all her fault then? It's all her fault. She doesn't know what she's, uh, you know, with Pandora's box she's opened with it. <laughs> To be honest, you don't know what she's opened yet for you either. Well, no, I don't know. That's true. But the, so what you have to remember, Carl, is when she starts moaning at all the time it takes and how much of, of your joint money that you're spending <laughs> on your hobby, you can throw that back in her face. You she, started yeah, it. Yeah, all your fault, love. Absolutely. I already have done as well. That's oh, <laughs> the argument to start it already. Just get, get used to that, Carl. Now, listen, how, how, did your, how did your sort of trial thing go? Did you enjoy that? Yeah, it was it was excellent. It, um, it, uh, it only had... Uh, 40 45 minutes up in the air the uh, but basically the uh, you know the instructor uh, did the takeoff then basically I had the controls all the way until uh, you know basically landing and when, uh, when I hope he took over again yeah when he when he did just 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 before Good. impact now be honest <laughs> impact no, impact, no. <laughs> no if yeah. you're learning badly already yeah, impact yeah. is not the way it should no, be no, going no, no. that's that's not a good word when we're talking about landings now when you were in the air at first on this first first uh, trial lesson of yours did you re- know where you were could you associate that bit being Coventry and that bit I'd know being Leamington Spa yeah, it was a, it was a you know it was a clear day, so reasonably good visibility. You could see Coventry, you could actually see Birmingham as well. And uh, I think you know we we had a little flight over towards Rugby, and then kind of turned around. You know it was clear enough to be able to recognise some of the places. It is a little bit disorientating up there, though, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it is. It takes it takes yeah, a little bit yeah. getting get get, get used, used to that to. feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's 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 what 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 we tend to call um, being uncertain of position. Yeah, you never lost. But you never yeah. you know you never lost. Never lost. You're 
uncertain no, it, position. It, it, I must admit, it was a lot easier to recognise the places when the instructor was, had a GPS in front of him and said, oh, that's, not, not, oh, oh, that's the last time for, that, yeah. for a year. Now yeah. you have a GPS. Yes. That's, the, that's your second mistake there. Impact and GPS are two words you don't use as a student, I'm yeah. afraid. No, sorry, Cole. Now, just one other question. Um, how much have they told you it's going to cost to learn? I, I did plenty of reading up on the internet to get an honest view of it because the this uh, the, I think the first estimate I had was something like five thousand pounds. I think I think it's yeah. fair to say it's a little bit higher than yeah, that. The, yeah, the reading around that I did it suggests it was probably going to be something more like eight. And obviously you've you've told the wife five, yeah. Yeah, of yeah, course. Okay, good. Of course, good. it's a it's a great ambition, Carl. Definitely. Um, where are you going to learn? Um, I am going to learn at Tayton Hill, just up the road from where I am. Have you got any worries or concerns about learning to fly? No, I, I suppose the, the usual nervousness when you go into doing a, a something new. I, I, you know, I was, a, I was a little bit nervous before the trial flight, but, it, you know, it felt like a very safe environment. Um, I actually have very few worries about it. I mean, I suppose the biggest thing is... It's just the you know the cost of it, I suppose. Do you know what planes they've got there? What do they teach you? Uh, Cessna one five two. One five two. Ah. The, the, the workhorse of the student pilot. It's a great yeah. old beast that is. And um, just what we'll do because obviously we're going to speak to you over the you know the next few months. I'm going to ask you a question now. We'll ask you the same question in a month's time, and we'll see how how much you've learnt. So I'll ask you now. Okay, what's QFE? Not the faintest idea. That's why he's asking. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll find out hopefully by the next time we speak to you. And how frequently do you think you'll get up there? I'd like to be able to get up once a week, um, but uh, I, I think it'll it'll just depend on uh, you know kind of availability and uh, you know and weather, I guess. So you well, do need to try and go as often as possible because that's the one thing that I think most people find is if you, if you leave it a long time, you you do forget quite quickly, so you go rusty very easily. I want to try and you know keep the momentum and go as often as possible. Well, we wish you well. Thank you. I'm sure you'll be great. <laughs> keep at it, and we'll come back and check on you. In uh, in a month's time, all right, and, and hopefully no impact, and no impact, <laughs> no Im- and, zero and, impact, and hopefully by then you'll know what QFE is as well. Right, well right. I'll I'll let, I'll let you know next time. <laughs> Good luck, Carl. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. No, really, what is QFE? Uh, you'll find out next month, Elias. Oh, thanks, mate. Uh, right, thank you for downloading and listening to the Flaps podcast. The first Flaps podcast. The, indeed, yes, I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, still more good things coming up, including this next gentleman, who I said originally at the start of this, we would get in the best people and people who know loads about flying. This man knows so much about flying. In fact, he's forgotten more than we know. He's a legend. He's got a great moustache. It's brilliant, really. Look at the pictures. And uh, he's called Pablo Mason, and we give him a minute. It's Mason's Minute. Hello, I'm Pablo Mason, a pilot of some repute, and I'm not quite sure what repute means. I'm not calling myself good, and I'm certainly not calling myself bad, but I have been flying for a very long time. Some of you may have heard of my exploits in the Gulf War of 1991. The odd one or two professionals may well have heard of exploits in the 70s flying helicopters in Northern Ireland or even before that during my military training. But I dare say that what's in the mind of a lot of people who may be listening now is my demise from my career as a commercial pilot towards the end of 2007 when I was sacked by my employer Thomas Cook for taking a professional footballer Robbie Savage, onto the flight deck of my aircraft during a private charter. Now, there's lots of stuff that still upsets me about that, but my employer had every rights to try and sack me. I believe that the sacking was wrong. 
Um, but the legal system decided that the sacking was right, and I stand by that. Um, I don't have sour grapes. I have a little bit of regret. It's three years down the line. I haven't flown professionally since then and would very much like to. So for any of you out there with your own airline, if you're looking for an aged, rather fat, balding pilot who seems to get on well with the passengers, give us a job. But just going back for a few seconds to my sacking, it was brought about by the fact that the rules said visitors to the flight deck were simply not allowed. And from day to day, I can understand those rules absolutely. The unfortunate events of 9-11, so the 11th of September 2001, brought America face-to-face with the world of terrorism and visits to the flight deck were no longer allowed. Now, what I think I did on my flight was used common sense, a private charter where everyone knew everyone else. Um, It was the return journey, two days after the outbound journey had been made, And the reason for banning flight decks was counter-terrorism. There was absolutely no risk whatsoever of a terrorist incident during the flight for which I was eventually sacked. Now, I still say common sense should prevail in any aeroplane that we fly. A light aircraft, a Cessna 152, a slightly heavier aircraft, an Aztec, up to the enormous Airbus A380s that are plying their trade around the world now. And if we ever, as pilots, however experienced, however inexperienced, throw common sense out of the window and put our heads down into the cockpit to find out what the rule book says, then by golly, I think we are running some tremendous risks with the freedoms that we enjoy, the limited freedoms that we enjoy as light aircraft operators. Always remember to aviate, navigate, communicate, in that sort of order. As my old man used to say, when you're up to your arse in crocodiles, you don't care who's draining the swamp. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. More from Pablo Mason next month. Now, the biggest story in aviation for ages uh, was the ash cloud emanating from the Icelandic volcano. Oh, you mean the What? The A What? The A What? The Eyjafjallajökull volcano. That doesn't sound like your voice, no, Mark. That was the man off Radio Four. Right. Okay. Yeah, that volcano in Iceland is the one we're talking about. Huge ash cloud. Loads of problems for jet planes, but actually quite good fun for GA pilots. Absolutely. Lots of people landing their little planes at Heathrow and Gatwick, Gatwick and yeah. all sorts of places which you'd never normally get to do. Uh, however, uh, Eric Moody has got experience of this. He's got some previous. Yes, he was flying a 747 when he inadvertently flew into an ash cloud and lost all four engines. And to tell us the amazing story, he's on the phone now. Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. Uh, hello, Eric Moody. Hello, how are you? Uh, very well indeed. Uh, so tell us all about it. I know it's 28 years ago, but uh, what happened exactly? Well, we knew nothing about what was going to happen. It was a dark old night, and we were flying at 37,000 feet from Kuala Lumpur to Perth in Western Australia on what we thought was going to be quite a simple night's work. And we got across Java, and it all began to happen. It was St. Elmo's fire, where there was this wonderful display on the windscreens on the front of the aircraft of this um, electronic discharge 
or electrical discharge. So how quickly after you started seeing that did the engine start to fail? Well, I got back on the flight deck because I was downstairs when it all started. And I, I was called back upstairs and I got back sat in my seat. Uh, and it all happened very quickly. The engine started to stop. And number four started firstly. It wasn't a gigantic or massive engine failure. But number four wound down, and it, we shut it down properly. And then number three went, or number two went, number three went, and then number one went almost simultaneously. You couldn't see ash. You couldn't see any ash clouds. You had no indication no, of anything going wrong. Just all four all. engines stopping must have been the most weird and, and unusual thing to experience. Well, it doesn't happen, does it? just didn't happen. And what are you th- when it happened, what were your thoughts? It was unusual or difficult to understand what was happening because... It didn't happen like the simulator told us um, four engines failures were going to happen. So how much altitude did you lose between um, the engines going? 25,000 feet in about 16 minutes. So what altitude were you at then? We started at 37,000 feet. We finished at about 12, 12 and a half. Now, if you'd not got the engines relit, could you have made a runway somewhere? No. No. No way. We would have been into the sea in the south. Um, eastern part of the Indian Ocean. You'd have been Captain Sullenberger 25 years earlier, wouldn't nah, you? No, I don't, we, we would have been dead, I think. We, I mean, it wasn't going to happen. It, was gonna, it wasn't going to happen. It was dark. I had no landing lights because they'd been sandblasted. We couldn't see out the front. And uh, no, we were dead. You were saying you couldn't see out of the window. I mean, you, no. you, you make your approach and obviously you can't see anything. So you had to do an instrument approach. Yeah, is that right? Well... We had to try, but there were only there was only half the ILS working. So on top of all, on top of your engine failure, <laughs> and you can't see, you now got no glide slope either. No, no glide slope. <laughs> so how did you get down? Well, we could see out a little bit down the edge of the windscreen, um, and uh, it was quite lucky that I could I could do that. Um, and without the other two, it would have been. A lot more difficult. But we, we, I mean, we managed to see out this little strip down the side of the windscreen. You're, you're quoted as saying landing it was a bit like negotiating one's way up a badger's arse. Is, yeah. that, is that what it was like? Yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, that was exactly the way it was. Do you think that, um, going back to April's ash cloud, the CAA overreacted? Well, not initially. They did the right thing the first night. But after that, it was a real overreaction. And um, too many people that had no knowledge of aviation got involved, and it became a great cock-up. And who'd have thought it, back in 1982, Eric, when this was all over and done and dusted, no pun intended, done, done and dusted. dusted. Nice, done, is that what you did there? Done and yeah. dusted. Um, who'd have thought that nearly 30 years later you'd still be talking about it, and it would be such big news? Now, I, I mean, I never thought I'd be talking about a volcanic ash cloud over the UK, that's for sure. So there it is, the first Flaps podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you're on iTunes, you can hit subscribe and uh, get it every month for free or download the podcast at flapspodcast.com. Email us at mail at flapspodcast.com. We'll be back next month with another load of good stuff for you, including Peter Burkhill. He's the pilot for the 777 who averted disaster at Heathrow. To be faced with this airspeed low warning is a, is a nasty uh, master caution to get at that stage. It was obvious to me at that point when I was looking at Hatton Cross Impact Point that all my passengers were were about to die. 
if I didn't do something. More from Pablo Mason and on the 10th anniversary of the Concorde disaster, we'll be talking to two of British Airways' most experienced Concorde flight crew. All that coming up next time on the Flaps Podcast. Please get in touch with us at mail at flapspodcast.com. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps. Flaps.